Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. The healthcare system is very challenging to navigate for most Americans. And this sentiment rings especially true for patients with complex health and social needs. Streamlining the healthcare system for these individuals is particularly important, as 5% of patients, typically those with multiple chronic conditions and poor social determinants, account for more than half of all of our medical spending. Our guest today is leading regional and national efforts to improve healthcare for these patients. Kathleen Noonan is the CEO of the Camden Coalition. That's a coalition of health and social service providers, community partners, advocates, and residents committed to elevating the health of patients who are facing the most complex medical and social challenges. The Camden Coalition develops and tests care management models that address chronic illness and social barriers to health across New Jersey and throughout the country. Before leading the Camden Coalition, Kathleen was the founding co-director of Policy Lab at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a research center that advanced public health policy solutions for vulnerable children, their caregivers, and their whole families. Kathleen continues to serve as faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and mediates public impact litigations concerning health, behavioral health, and human service issues. We're excited to hear from Kathleen about her career fighting for vulnerable patients and her current work leading the Camden Coalition. Kathleen, thank you for joining us here on Turn On The Lights. We're so glad to have you here. But maybe first we could learn a little bit about you and about the Camden Coalition. So please take us in. Uh, what is the Camden Coalition? How did it get started? And, and how did you come to work there? Sure. The Camden Coalition, for people out there who have colleagues who they sit around with at the breakfast table, at the lunchroom at work or whatever, the Camden Coalition started like that a group of providers in Camden, physicians, social workers, a community-based organization that at the time was probably one of the only community-based organizations that had community health workers, got together in different meetings and realized that they were all dealing with the same issue. Which and is when not- was this, Kathleen? Like, when, when are we talking about here? Oh, sure. Sorry. 2002. Okay. So 20 years ago. 20 years mm-hmm. ago, a group of providers got together around breakfast and said, we are all trying to serve a very needy group of people in Camden, New Jersey, a city that is mostly black and brown, that has a very high poverty level, very low wages, and our patients are going in and out of the hospital. And when they come to see us, nothing feels like it's improved. What are we doing wrong? And so this breakfast group eventually became the Camden Coalition, which is a a sort of multi-sector community resident and professional group that comes together to try to improve the health outcomes in Camden, New Jersey originally, and now in South Jersey, but also around the country. And what was their diagnosis, Kathleen? Like when they sat around that kitchen table and they said, we keep seeing people come in and out of the hospital, not getting any better, our friends, our neighbors are colleagues in some cases. What did they land on as what was as to the cause of that? What was causing that problem? Yeah. I would say that they landed on one particular culprit, which was the fragmentation of the system. 
that people could come out of the hospital and not necessarily be able to get right back into primary care or not necessarily be able to connect with the specialty that they needed. And that's why they thought of this idea of a team of a community health worker, a nurse, and a social worker actually being the glue between that hospital stay or that emergency department visit and the person being discharged to the community. That team could be short-term glue to get the person stabilized back in the health system. Kathleen, when you said that they were talking about a particularly challenged or difficult population, say more about that. What is the challenge? What were these uh, patients and families dealing with that was hard? Yeah. So most of our clients then, and even clients today, are people who have at least two chronic medical conditions. So think of somebody that has some kind of heart failure or diabetes. They also have some kind of, most of our clients have some kind of mental health issue or history of substance use, or they may be actively in substance use. And then many of them are in unstable housing or are unhoused. So at the time, we were looking in particular at this very high needs group because where this, again, this records group was thinking, here's this incredibly needy group that is getting, in some ways, a lot of services, right? They have a lot of touches of the system, not seeing any improvement really in their overall health or well-being. And like all big problems that are addressed at kitchen tables, there was a solution that was offered by this group. And it sounded like the solution was a team-based approach to help bridging the gap between the hospital and the community setting. There were there are aspects of that team, though. There was a community health worker. You mentioned that. Before we get too far, tell us what we mean by a community health worker. What's a community health worker and why was a community health worker in particular important to the solution here? Sure. Yeah. A community health worker is a worker that is really sometimes someone from the community, but not always. Certainly someone that is very comfortable navigating at the community level and really making visits in the community, right? So the whole point of the community health worker was a worker who was thinking about the needs of the patient while they were in the community. They may have basic understanding of health needs, probably a better understanding of social needs and social resources, and being the person who can follow up in the community where the person lives, even if it's at a homeless shelter, to help them get the things, right? They're, they're discharged with a list of things they should do to help them accomplish those things. Can you tell us a story of a particular patient, some of this sticks in your mind, that kind of gives us an image of what it's like to get this kind of help? Sure. I'll give you a picture of a patient that I have, we have on a slide, early patient of ours, name was Michael. Michael was very young. He was probably in his early 20s, and he had several medical issues that were complications that came about because of his substance use and living on the street. But he really wanted to get healthy and get sober. And so we met Michael in the hospital, and we asked him if he wanted to enroll in our program. He was discharged to a shelter 
we then continued to meet with him. So the place where we met him was the shelter on a regular basis. And the community health worker worked with Michael to actually figure out what is it that you feel like you need to get better, right? And at the time, we used 16 cards that sort of looked like Monopoly cards that we would put in someone, in front of someone to say, which of these things are the most important to you? And if the person wanted, they could also write it out as a plan. And so we have a picture of Michael's plan that he wrote out. And the first five things that Michael wanted had nothing to do with his health issues or his substance use. The first thing he wanted was an ID. The second thing he wanted was a copy of his social security card. The hmm. third thing he wanted was his paperwork so that he actually had it to carry it with him. Why did he want these things? Why did he want his ID and social because security? Because it is almost impossible to apply for benefits, to apply for jobs, yeah. to apply unless you have those things, to apply for housing. And he understood that he was not going to get to what was number six on his list, which was his substance use recovery, until he had all those other things in place. And with a team of a community health worker, a social worker, and a nurse may help with the substance use and some of the medical issues, the community health worker is going to be aware of those, but really hone in on those first five things, right? How are we going to help you with those? And the social worker is there if there are higher level clinical issues going on that maybe need um, some support that the nurse or the community health worker might not be able to. So how did things work out for Michael? What was the ongoing story? The ongoing thing was that Michael actually did okay. He was an early, very successful client that was housed, did get sober, an example of someone that really convinced us in this model. So you left the normal boundaries of healthcare and instead yeah. adjusted the efforts to what Michael was telling you he needed. So early on, not long after the Canada Coalition started, as I remember, it got quite a bit of notoriety. One of the yeah. co-founders, Jeff Brenner, was a MacArthur Fellow and won a Genius Award. Yeah. Uh, Gawande wrote a very a prominent paper on hotspotters yeah. in, in uh, The New Yorker. And one had the feeling that something was going on there. What, what seemed to get people excited here? I think that it was a, a confluence of things. And certainly as someone who picked up The New Yorker and read the hotspotting piece at the time, I certainly know what my excitement was about. There was big new federal legislation, the Affordable Care Act. And at that point, we all, and I, when I say we all of us, like on this podcast, we're so excited about the promise of a big step in terms of the investment the federal government was making in healthcare and in healthcare that was broader and more comprehensive with its support of prevention. And so the idea that this new bigger, not a bigger system, but this new bigger idea and this system that really embraced prevention was going to be thinking outside the hospital system. And so it seemed like the model that the Camden Coalition was offering was something that might be able to get picked up by other health systems, right? We thought if the affordable, if primary care is invested in the way it seems like it's going to be invested in through the Affordable Care Act, 
There are going to be lots of primary care offices that take on our model, lots of primary care offices that start having community health workers that do these types of visits. Or so Kathleen, systems. you thought that, that the Camden model would be adopted in more or less whole cloth by the existing healthcare ecosystem through the ACA or the Affordable Care Act or through other mechanisms, some parts of it would be picked up by the system as it was. We imagine that it would be. And I would say that if I look around today and see the explosion of community health workers and the the change in integrated primary care and some of the things we've seen, there have been a lot of changes. The landscape here in Camden is not the same as it was in 2010, but it's not, it was not whole cloth. Let's put it that way. There were pieces of it that have been picked up. Mm -hmm. So how did it get paid for? How did our work get paid for? Yeah. How did the Camden model get paid for under our current system? Or was it special funding of some kind? It was special funding of some kind. Yeah. So there's a but. So parts of it, there's a Parts of it got picked up. You yeah. mentioned the spread and scale up of community health workers, which is, which has been actually a very big change in the ecosystem and the environment. I think the recognition that social needs of our patients and families are vital uh, and often determine health outcome has become a lot more a part of the conversation. So that's those things feel true. But what didn't get Picked up. What what do you feel we didn't get adopted or didn't find its way into the common usage of the model? What what didn't make it in the end? Let me I'll talk about the system first and then I'll talk a little bit about the pieces of the model themselves. But the system has not addressed the fragmentation issue. So it has not addressed the issue of patients being discharged at the door with essentially a ledge, right? There's no infinity edge, right? It's like a ledge. And the fragmentation issues that we have within systems, across systems, is probably worse because I don't know how many specialties there are created every hour, but like healthcare is just seems to specialize even more. And that all just, again, just creates more fragmentation. So that's the first thing is that I think our fragmentation is worse and not better. The second thing is that the pieces that really haven't been picked up for the most part are health systems really are not doing community-based visits. That just isn't happening. The type of visit that we did where from meeting someone and enrolling them in their hospital bed while they were inpatient and then meeting them in the community. Most programs don't enroll people that way, even when you have a CBO working with a health system. So that didn't translate. And then we thought we would see more of the types of supports that we brought to people in primary care, and it's not there at all. The investment in primary care just hasn't happened. We see a lot of we see a lot of interesting kinds of investment in primary care. Perhaps I wonder if you have a view on that. We see big players, United, Optum, buying primary care practices. We see private equity investments in in primary care. Lots of startups in the primary care space. So there is a, a type of investment in primary care. But how would you differentiate that type of investment from the kind of investment that you had maybe hoped for? I see those investments as changing 
who is managing or running primary care, but I don't see them as changing dramatically what's available to people in primary care. What would it take, Kathleen, to make the Camden model much more pervasive? And let me interrupt myself by by adding one other question. As you were describing getting lost at the point of discharge, not feeling continuity, surely for people with multiple burdens like Michael, that's particularly hard. But we hear a lot from people in far wealthier circumstances than Michael also about discontinuity that I, right. I've forgotten what I'm discharging. I, I wonder what, if, what you think of that. So I guess I've asked two questions. Is this bigger than populations that are stressed? And then second, what would it take to make this kind of continuity the standard? Yeah, I, I think that it's a, almost a pathology of the health system, the fragmentation. It really is something that affects everyone I know has had a, an experience with the healthcare system where they've been left to care manage themselves among specialty doctors or not know who to call or get stuck between two doctors with different opinions and not know really whether they're the ones that are supposed to negotiate it or not. I would say that is the norm and that is a norm whether you are wealthy and on the best private insurance or have less income and are on Medicaid. It's just a, it's characterological of our system. So if you could wave a wand, you're like, you're the boss now. What would you do to make American healthcare more continuous, especially for vulnerable populations like you're dealing with? What's going to take? I think we're trying to give everybody the same of a little bit of care. And I think that there are vulnerable populations that probably need a a more intensive type primary care. And so I don't think that for those that are healthy and just need their regular checkups and all that, they may not be the ones that need that level of care. And so I, I do, I think a lot of people have talked about segmentation of the population. I do think we probably need something like that. Some expectation actually of people. I think that there are people who are healthy who still assume their doctor's going to case manage, and no one has explained to them that primary care doctors don't really do that anymore. (laughs) They don't case manage across your specialists. And so I think we need to set expectations differently for people while the consumers, while we're also segmenting to figure out who really does need a physician to care manage. We have this explosion of care management programs, and yet for some people, Really, they need a physician or a highly trained nurse care managing because of the complexity of the case. We just mean much more, I think, segmentation and and level setting than we do right now. I've been looking at literature, uh, individuals with complex needs for a long time, together with members of the Camden Coalition. And this language of segmentation comes up all the time. And for our listeners, that means dividing a whole population into specific groups that might need more or less services depending on who they are and what their needs might be. Whether it's, you can imagine a population that has a segment that has substance use challenges like Michael did, uh, that needs specialized services that would help him. A segment that might have housing instability that needs that kind of service. So that segmentation in the aggregate, I think, Ian Kathleen, you can correct me, is about taking a whole population and seeing what specific services might be assignable to different parts. But to Don's point earlier, it actually seems like we need better 
care navigation for pretty much everyone on some level. And, and that you mentioned this idea that it was structurally, our system seems to be characterologically or structurally flawed when it comes to connecting the dots for any population, regardless yes. of their need. So how do we manage this idea of segmentation when, in fact, everyone needs better connectivity in this way? Yeah, I, I think that I'm not sure I have exactly the answer for you, but I do think that ideas around how departments and team and teams actually interact with each other is one part of it. I worked in a health system and I know that you could almost go from department to department and there could be those same ledges, right? And some expectation of the system around the team all being in the same place, I think is really important. There are certainly the models we've heard of. The Mayo Clinic is the case study I remember reading of every doctor is like in the case and knows what's going on. And we don't really have that expectation. And is that going to be the expectation? And if so, how do you get there? I don't know if we've set that expectation, right? I don't know if we really have. The fact that we're all not experiencing that to me means in some sense, we've yeah, all- something more fundamental going on here, right? And how our system right. is built and organized. Right. Yeah. And this is a long time ago. Doctors used to have privileges. They would call privileges. That meant that you were allowed to go into the hospital. You were an employee of the hospital and you had to go into that hospital. And if one of your patients was in that hospital, there was some expectation that you were care managing that patient. I don't know when that practice stopped, but when that practice stopped, you essentially stopped the connection between those primary care doctors and hospitals. And even in systems where the primary care doctors are working for the hospital, you still have this disconnect. Reminding me, my yeah. father was a general practitioner in a small town in Connecticut. And yeah. every day, sometimes twice a day, he would drive 17 miles to the hospital to round on his patients, see his patients. He, it was a totally different environment. Yeah. Kathleen, I want to raise a difficult matter. So let me, let's take us there. As wonks like Cater and I know, there was, there's been evaluation of the uh, Canadian model, and there was a particularly one randomized clinical trial that is a yeah. very formal study that was published, oh, I don't know, was it uh, maybe a decade ago, that said, well, wait a minute, we can't find results here, that the, the, we're not able to show results, yeah. uh, which raised a lot of eyebrows. How did that land with you and your team? And what are the results? What do you really see is happening? And how did that trial get digested by you and your colleagues? So when I... Actually, the study was published in 2020, but the study started a decade ago. And when I took the position as a successor to Jeff, I didn't know how the randomized control trial was going to come out. And I thought, if it's no, that's learning for the field. And if it's not, that's amazing. We have like actually some answers. And how the results came out were null effect as to if you looked at the people who had our intervention and the people who didn't, when you looked 180 days from that point of enrollment in the hospital, they each set had the same level of readmissions to the hospital. So there's no difference. So the looked, measure that we were that was being followed in the study, yes, the primary outcome measure was a measure of whether they came back to the hospital. Exactly. Within 180 days. And exactly. they found no difference between... No difference. Yep. Uh, and 
We also looked at SNAP benefits. So SNAP benefits for people who don't know are food, what were all, all used to be uh, called food stamps. And there was a statistically significant difference between the people in the intervention group who got our care management and people who didn't. So obviously, you know, we were hoping that there were better results and that we could say that we had an answer for a really difficult problem. I think that my sense from the staff while we were waiting for the results was that there was a sense that the short-term care management on its own, that 90-day intervention wasn't sufficient to actually address the needs of most of our clients, which is why during the study, we created a housing program because there wasn't enough housing. And during the study, we enrolled all of the primary care offices in Camden to actually create special appointments for people in our study. So we saw that the system was really, as we were trying to do the intervention on this much broader scale, that the system was not set up in a way that we could meet people's needs. Now, I will say that we just published a paper and we have results, some secondary analyses that we've done on the data showing that when we look at the group 30 days out or 90 days out, we can show some significance. And also when we look at dosage, there's a difference in terms of readmission. We'll be publishing on all of that. So we think that there's a lot to learn from the data, but there's also still a lot that we don't know. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean by dosage in that uh, comment, Kathy? How much care management intervention somebody got. So we actually tracked how many hours somebody was seeing our care team, how many phone calls they got, how many community visits they got. And so we could look at the difference in dosage between people in the intervention to see if those that got higher dosage actually had fewer readmissions. So Kathleen, are you now, with those results in hand, you've made some adjustments or changes to the model. You've also established a national center to yeah. help spread the approach across the country and, and perhaps even broader than that. But tell us what you've done with the model since the results of this trial and, and even since the time the original idea was put forward. How, how have you changed the model and what are you thinking about going forward? Yeah. First of all, we had to change our, we've changed our point of view since 2010 and the passage of the ACA. We don't ever imagine anymore a health system in which community health workers are going to be doing visits to the community. We, we just, we have not seen take up of that. It's very hard to imagine that happening. If it's going to happen, it's going to maybe happen out of very specialized primary care or some kind of care for a specialized population, but not in the broad scale way that we were doing that in the hospital and across so many different people with so many different conditions. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we are really honing in a lot more on that list of Michaels, those top five things. And how do we make sure that there's attention to those things while also paying attention to the medical issues? And so for those things, for us, it's not, 
it, it doesn't have to be a, the Camden Coalition team, but whoever the team is that's going to be working with Michael in the health system and outside of the health system have to really agree on what they're working on and both know what that list is, right? And so we're spending a lot more time thinking about the teams that are working across particular people and how they themselves can strengthen what they do to focus then on the metric that they all care about. Kathleen, I must say, when I first met Jeff Brenner and began way back now in ancient times to see what was going on in Camden, I got really excited. It seemed to me you were breaking the mold. This was very hard, uphill battle against a healthcare system that was fragmented. And I must say a lot of issues around social justice because you were dealing with people that really were denied access to important supports. And here there was a buzz. There was a sense of excitement and uh, I got turned on. I remain a fan. Yeah. Uh, Talk about yourself. So you, I mean, you've, you've 2018, so you've been there now five years. What does it mean to you? What does it feel like to be involved? And what is your own level of confidence or optimism that, that a different way to, to approach continuity of care actually produces different results for patients? How are you? Tell us about you. Honestly, I think in order to do it, we have to have stronger relationships between community-based organizations that are willing to take risks and health systems that want to take risks but might not be able to do it themselves, and they need a community-based partner to do that. And so the kind of stuff that we're thinking we're doing that I think is breaking the mold is embedding our medical legal partnership in our local health system's addiction medicine clinic. With a medical legal partnership? Yeah. Yeah. Say more um, about that. A medical legal partnership is a medical partnership typically between a health system and maybe a public interest law group or a law school's clinic. And a lot of times they work on very important issues, often related to benefits, often things that are not threatening to the hospital or the hospital's general counsel and compliance officers. I spent 10 years in a hospital. I understand those worries. I don't have the same worries at the Camden Coalition. And so I can have our medical legal partnership go in and work within the team of an addiction medicine practice and say, Michael, you were arrested because you assaulted somebody when you were high. We can help you with that as part of your treatment. You have issues with your landlord because of an eviction. We can help you with that. We are literally taking on issues that are so important to the treatment, but that are risky, right? They're risky. They're things that would make a hospital nervous. It is the perfect example of why you need a community-based organization working alongside a hospital. The hospital has the addiction medicine specialists. They have absolutely ramped up in that way, but they are not going to create the legal support and the community support system that we can support alongside them. And so those are the kinds of partnerships that we're thinking a lot more about. How do you find that there's such there's an ecosystem of community organizations in any given geography? I remember IHI years ago did work in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and there were over 150 community-based organizations in Green Bay they were trying to help in some dimension of poverty alleviation or homelessness or food or health. 
How do you identify and scale the solutions needed to partner with the health system to try to solve the problems of Michael and more like him? How do we, how do you find those partnerships and, and help them grow? I'm so fond of like population level data points, like 150. But honestly, the way we typically find them is by piloting a set of patients and then mapping out from them who's the most helpful, who's the fastest, who's the most comprehensive, whose care model is the most flexible, and then start working around those partners. So it's really, I don't think we do it, we build it up as opposed to building it from the, we're going to do an RFP and ask the housing groups instead. Yeah, I like that idea. So you ask the people who have the needs, who they trust to solve their problems, and you identify who the trustworthy, reliable organizations are to solve those problems, and then you help build those up. Yeah. The other thing is that reminds me of when I was doing work for New York City, and I looked at their top scoring providers in this particular area. And then I asked everybody that did referrals who their favorite providers were. And I did it in a way that it was organized. And it turns out that there was a difference, that the people who did the referrals liked the people who answered the phone first, even if they were not the best. So you somehow have to combine those two things, but it's really important to know on the ground who answers the phone, who's flexible, then you need to bring some rigor around the standards you expect because it's not they're not always the same groups. There's something, there's an important lesson to that for those of our listeners that are either working within community-based organizations or working with community-based organizations. The idea that somebody answers the phone is probably a key trust builder, relationship builder, and then to back that up with an approach that makes sense and actually delivers probably feels like a combination that's worth uh, worthwhile. In healthcare today, who answers the phone? Good question. Some automated, if you need this, hit five. Person. A chatbot. A chatbot. Open AI it's, answers the phone. It's infuriating <laughs> to everybody. Kathleen, if any of our listeners happen to be in a position, either in a hospital or in a community-based organization or just caring about stressed members of their population, want to learn more about the Camden Coalition, your model, how it's worked, what you've learned, is there an easy way for people to get access to some help and advice? Sure. They can certainly go to our website, camdenhealth.org, but there's also easy ways to reach out to us. So I'm happy to make my contact information available on your podcast. So thank you. You've learned so much now over nearly two decades of work. That's amazing. I time flies and this willingness to continue to adjust your model as you navigate toward the real needs of the population is just golden. It's a real gift. Yeah. What? I was going to say the truth is that in I worked in a hospital, so I see how much time and energy went into cancer breakthroughs and cardiac breakthroughs. And those are the types of breakthroughs that we're looking through here. And so when we embed an attorney in an addiction medicine clinic, we're looking for a breakthrough like that. We really are. And we don't know all of them yet, but we know that there are breakthroughs in the same ways that there have been in other areas. And you have to believe that the so-called fail is just another step towards some better answers. I like that image of, of creating breakthroughs in the same kind of way that we have come to trust and rely upon the health system to deliver for us, whether it's saving a life 
for someone having a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah. Uh, we're saving a lot. You're saving a life and using a different set of tools, but still the saving a life in, in an important set of ways. And I know it's dramatic, but I just want to say we actually see it that way. Like we yeah. see it as saving a life. We very much, when we think about prenatal care initiation rate, we think about the 30 people who died in South Jersey last year through infant mortality and think, how do we get our hands on those people today to save their lives? So it's very urgent for us. Kathleen, we have uh, one final question that we ask all our guests on the podcast. And it's really a question about your view of the the world to come. Um, it's uh, how do you feel, given what you've learned and what you've seen, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about our future in, in American healthcare? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it depends on the day. And I am a lawyer, so I do pessimism really well. But some days I feel like all we're doing is making things not get worse. And if that's the case, I feel like it's not a bad day. And some days I feel like we're actually getting to some incremental change. I think that we need some disruptions and some breakthroughs, though, with all that incremental change. And so I keep hoping that we get there. I'm a little worried about all the buying up of primary care and what that does to the people who actually need a doctor today and those systems. But primary care wasn't changed through the ACA. And I think that this is the market saying it needs to change in some way. I'm not sure we're there yet with these changes, but I hope it takes us to where it needs to go. Kathleen Noonan, thank you so much for joining us here on uh, Turn On The Lights. You can find the breakthroughs that Camden, the Camden Coalition is creating at camdenhealth.org. Thank you once again for being here. Thanks for having me. So what, what were some of your thoughts listening to Kathleen, Cater? It's a it's such an important model. I remember reading about the Camden Coalition and meeting some of the people there so many years ago. And the, the concept made so much sense. I, I think so much of why it captured so many of us and really entered the American healthcare imagination was because the concept made sense. It was put some people who intimately know your community onto your care team and have them help you as you leave the hospital. I mean, that's, it makes a good, makes logical and good sense. And then and it started to work. You saw people like she described it, like Michael, get better, find his way, receive the services needed. I thought your point about the fact that everyone needs this is not just the Michaels of the world, not to say the Michaels of the world don't need it. They absolutely need it. And probably they suffer much worse because it, that kind of discoordination occurs. More is true. Everyone needs this. I can't, so many people that enter and exit the American healthcare system find challenges in navigating it or fall through the cracks at whatever level of the economic picture or otherwise. So I feel like this is a need that's pervasive across the system. I agree. We've been so good in healthcare about building walls and fences and cliffs, as Kathleen put it, so that when you transit between doctors or among institutions or from hospital to rehab or rehab to home or whatever, you really are taking a risk in this system today. And there's nobody holding care managing is her word. It means like helping you on the journey. The classical primary care doctor was supposed to be doing that, but it's an empty, too empty a chair right now. You have to be a bit of a hero. And then you take to the population like Michael's where there's all sorts of stresses it, it, without some navigation function 
what do you expect we'll get? We heard some of this also from other podcast interviewees who are dealing with uh, returning incarcerated people, leaving prison, coming back to communities. Again, lost in translation or lost in yeah. It doesn't yeah. work. I also, we didn't get into this with Kathleen, but I think it's much more expensive. I think probably when you add up the bill, they're dropping these balls all the time. And well, like you, I, w- I remain excited about Canada Coalition. I did, we did get a discussion of this randomized trial and I have some feelings about that. I'm a scientist and I certainly believe in proper evaluation, but in this case, I'm not sure that randomized trial, which compared people that got the program to those that didn't helped us at all. It, it's, it was using the wrong tool for us. Yeah how to develop and evaluate the uh, progress that Camden's made. I don't know what you feel about that one. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think having read that paper and followed the fallout of that trial, I think it did. We we're using an instrument, pretty blunt instrument, to try to understand nuance and subtlety and also change. And Kathleen described the evolution of the model. They started that trial eight to 10 years ago. And that's the nature of randomized controlled studies. They, they start from a long time ago and they take time to, to do it. In the meantime, so many changes have taken place in the population and in the intervention itself over that duration. She described several of those changes and I think that's part of what's going on here. I also think this idea of community health workers is, is powerful and interesting. I, I was a little bit curious about her comment that community health workers may not be something that we can rely on as a solution. I, I heard that in her description. They were a big part of the Camden model initially and I think she felt like the ACA kind of let her let them down around this, that the legislation didn't allow for more community health workers in the community. I, I wondered about your point of view on that, Don. You were involved in helping the ACA in the ACA's implementation. Did you see potential for community health workers coming out De- of that? Definitely, yeah. yes. But Kathleen said something important, which to the ACA, which obviously I helped to implement as head of Medicare and Medicaid, I'm a big fan. I think it was a step forward for the country, but it did yeah. not engage the issues in a more robust primary care model that Kathleen's talking about. It it made some gestures towards stronger primary care, but there's another law needed, I would say. One of our next steps in American healthcare improvement to really strengthen primary care, which doesn't just mean primary care doctors. That's where we come to community health workers and uh, other coordinators. like Well, it's this transition service that we're talking about. I think that's a uniform, maybe there's, a, as you rightly say, there's a theme in our our prison health one. There's a theme here. There's a theme here around this need, not not necessarily a clinical need around primary care, but almost a service around transition management that you can imagine being a vital part of whatever the future primary care bill or law is that's needed in, in the future. Yeah, right now, any organization or individual physician, let's say, who invests in that and says, I'm going to hold your hand through this, I'll be there, here's my own number or whatever, we're going to really walk you back to home and make sure you're okay. There's no payment for that. It's not. It's, yeah, they're doing it, that on a voluntary basis. Absolutely. Right? It's just, and plus, from the physician's point of view, it's what productivity lost because it's not a codable visit. So Kathleen didn't get into that in any detail, but we have a, I think we have a financing system that makes it really hard. But Don, let me ask you a question about this. Your father and my father did this as a matter of service, right? They did exactly that kind of follow-up and follow-through, not because somebody paid them more to do it, but because they saw it as necessary and part of their job description. I think, and I actually don't know your father. I don't know why he did it, but my father did it because he saw it as part of the job. And I guess I'm curious, you're positing that we need an incentive structure or some mechanism of supporting physicians and clinicians to do this work in the future. Why do we need that? Why? What is it about the times today that requires that versus how it was some years ago? 
I wish I knew Cater. My father was a family doctor in a small town and a very good doctor, but I have a, I don't have rose-colored glasses on. He was a human being like today's human beings. And yet, nonetheless, when he, I, there were days he'd come back from the hospital, it's 17 miles away, and pull up into the driveway, get a call about a patient that, that had done worse in the hospital, turn around the car and drive back. And this was not fee for service. I don't think there was any tiny, even tiny little piece about that. He would get paid more, probably didn't get paid for that. I, but it was I, like, it was his job. And uh, I, romantic part of me maybe says, well, it's still our job. And the doctors and nurses out there who are sweating bullets right now, trying to deal with a system inside them, I think they probably have the same motivation. I also sometimes wonder whether when we commodify or whatever that is, the, the, or proletarianize that work, say doctor will pay you a little more if you do this, a little less if you do this wrong, or you get extra points for controlling diabetes. I, I wonder if we're creating a massive misunderstanding or kind of throwing away something quite important, even maybe poetic in the role of the professional. And uh, no, we're not saints, uh, doctors, of course not, but it's in there. So I don't know, Kater. Yeah, leave. that's a complexity that I think we should probably look into. It's an interesting idea. And I think, you know, the point that I was, and you're making the point that I was trying to make in some level, which is that we may not, we may do more harm than good by adding incentive and money to a transition service, as we might imagine it, when in fact, yeah. that's just part of the duties as called for. Don, it's always a pleasure. Great to speak with you and with Kathleen today and more to come. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.